The name is Sean, and uh, I'm just an everyday schnook. And this is part of my story. Greetings, everybody. Happy Christmas. It's too late to say Happy Hanukkah. Hope all of you who celebrated Hanukkah had a happy one. Happy Kwanzaa, happy Boxing Day, happy um, whatever holiday you you choose to celebrate, assuming you do celebrate a holiday. I just hope it's happy for you. And I hope I get this episode out in time for that greeting to apply to you. But anyway, thank you for listening to Chapter 29 of Autobiography of a Schnook. I am Sean. I'm a schnook. Seems like I just did an episode, doesn't it? Well, yeah, here's the thing. I wanted the previous episode to come out a lot earlier than it did. And I want to do everything I can to make sure this episode comes out Christmas Eve. So let's see how that works. Still going to put in a lot of effort doing post-production. I do my own post-production, which can be fun, but it can also be annoying. I'm recording this on December 22nd, 2020, the day after my wife Lisa's birthday. We had a really, really good day, even though we couldn't really do anything because, you know, COVID. But we were able to get a nice meal from McCormick and Schmick's Steakhouse. We just drove downtown and did a curbside thing. Lisa's birthday present to herself was she bought 30 minutes of uh, one-on-one time with Michael Nesmith of the Monkees, and uh, she had a Zoom call with him. And uh, that was really cool. She was afraid that she was going to be this, like, raging maniac, but she was not at all. She was so cool about it. And uh, they talked mostly about education because early in the chat, he said, so what do you do for a living? And she said, well, I'm a high school teacher. And they went back and forth about that. <laughs> and uh, probably about 20 minutes in, Lisa said, oh, by the way, what's that picture of? Is that that's a picture of your dog, is it? So they talked about his dog, Dale, for a bit. And after the call, she told me, I didn't want to talk about work today. So I tried to change the subject, <laughs> but, but it was a really cool conversation that the two of them had so that was cool we had we had a really good day we watched some stuff on tv and dvd and took a nice long walk with the dog and uh yeah that's uh been my life and now lisa had a doctor's appointment she had a checkup not terribly long ago two or three weeks ago and she asked her doctor what would you think about me seeing my in-laws on christmas and her doctor said no you stay home so And Lisa said, yeah, I kind of figured you'd say that. I just wanted to make sure. So I checked with my doctor and I said, here's the deal, doctor. My parents are 80 and 77 and my father has a mild form of COPD. Neither my wife nor I have had any symptoms of COVID whatsoever. We're pretty sure we haven't been exposed to it. And my parents live in Will County. What would you think about us visiting them for Christmas? Just driving down, visiting them for the day. She responded to me and said, I don't recommend it. And she added, however, if you really want to go against my recommendation, then here's what I strongly urge you to do. Quarantine yourself for two solid weeks and get a COVID test the day before you visit them. Which, of course, that wasn't going to fly because it was already too late to have a two-week isolation. And the way the COVID tests have been going, God knows when you get the results. And Lisa was telling me before how, like even before we checked with our doctors about this, she said, I don't feel safe going to anybody's house. So if you're going, then you're going without me. And I really don't want you to go because I don't want you to catch anything. I don't want you to possibly spread anything you might already have. And I said, you know, that's fair enough. And now in the previous episode, I talked about how I wasn't really 
worried about the fallout if I had to tell my parents, especially my mother, that we weren't going to be going down there for Christmas. But the truth is, I was really on edge. I was seriously on edge because my mother loves to give guilt trips. In 2000, I wasn't able to go home and visit them for Christmas. Long story short, my boss at my new job screwed me out of uh, time off. I, I, they, she wouldn't even let me go unpaid. That's a story for another time, I guess. The following year, 2001, even though I was going out to visit, I had all the plans in place, my mother reamed me for the previous year. So I was not looking forward to the uh, chat that I had to have with her that said, yeah, I'm staying home. But I bit the bullet. I went in, I called my mother, and I said... Hey, just want to let you know, at the advice of both of our doctors at Northwestern, I wanted to put at Northwestern in there to uh, basically emphasize the fact that these are doctors that know what they're talking about. (laughs) I said, we are staying home for Christmas. And my mother said, oh, okay, well, thanks for telling me. Um, I don't know if your brother's coming either because he's got things going on and I want him to be safe too. She said, you know, well, we'll do what we can. And she said, maybe what we can do is just... If you want to come down and we'll just do a quick exchange of presents really, really quick and be on our way. I said, yeah, that's probably what we're going to do. In fact, uh, what Lisa and I are probably going to do is just bring the presents down and just meet them outside and say, here you go and grab our stuff and go on. (laughs) Um, I was so relieved, though. And my mother said, oh, okay, well, thanks for telling me. (laughs) She didn't put up a fight or didn't try to guilt me. And she just said, so, hey, what else is going on with you guys? I was like, oh. Big sigh of relief. Big, big sigh of relief. We're still going to have a nice Christmas. I mean, I've been off since Friday, December 18th. Lisa's been off since, well, that afternoon, actually. And we've been having a nice time. We've re- we really have been just relaxing and getting ready for Christmas. Uh, we're still going to have a nice Christmas. We're, even though we can't visit our families and Lisa's mom can't come out to visit us, we're still going to have a nice time. It'll be the first time, really, that we got to spend Christmas with our dog, really, (laughs) because previously, like last year, we boarded Lola for Christmas just because it was our first time with her. We didn't know how she would be being left alone home all day with the Christmas stuff up. So we boarded her. And when we had Ruthie, uh, we, of course, we didn't really see Ruthie that much on Christmas because we were at my parents all day. But it'll be nice to have Lola for Christmas. Yeah, there are a lot of things we love doing that we couldn't do this year. Like in Chicago here, they do what's called a Christ Kindle market. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's a German market, really, with all kinds of vendors and things selling homemade crafts and uh, a lot of good food, too. Uh, That's usually a big, huge event here in Chicago. Um, They have one downtown, and then they have a smaller one at Wrigley Field lately. But due to COVID, they're not doing it in person this year. They have the vendors where you can order stuff, but that's about it. But last time we went, I had a soft pretzel with root beer mustard. I thought that was unusual. Now, it definitely tasted like root beer, and it definitely tasted like mustard. And you'd think that the combination would be weird, but it was really good. It was really good. If you have a chance to try root beer mustard sometime, give it a shot. You might like it. And the Chicago Transit Authority, every year, they have a bus that they just completely deck out in holiday decorations with Christmas lights and and a fireplace and everything. And they do that with uh, one of the L trains too. And they release a schedule as to when the holiday bus is going to be around, what uh, CTA L line is going to have the holiday train on what day and what time. They're doing 
I don't know about the bus, but they're doing the train again, except they're not allowing passengers. But it's still nice to know that that's uh, happening, that you can still see this decked out train go by with all its lights on and everything. And it's so cool that they, they're still doing that. Uh, yeah, I can't get on it, but well, the truth is that thing is so jam-packed on a normal year that you might not be able to get on it in the first place. Now, there's something that happens every year that really gets me excited about Christmas coming up. And uh, one of those things, there's a shrine to Our Lady of Guadalupe in uh, Des Plaines, Illinois, which is uh, just a few miles outside of Chicago. And every year on Our Lady of Guadalupe's feast day, which is December 12th, a lot of Mexican Catholics make a pilgrimage over to that shrine. They walk there. They walk to it. And it's covered in the news every year. They show it. They do a story about that. And, uh, you know, I'm not a very good Catholic, but I still love knowing that that happens. They take a walk from wherever they live. It's a long walk, obviously, to visit the shrine. And a lot of able-bodied people, for the last mile of the trip, they walk on their knees to the shrine. That's dedication. That is de- that is devotion. But I love seeing the news stories about that because, you know, I, I, res- I, I have high respect for people who are that devoted to their religions, you know, provided they don't use their religions as an excuse to persecute people, of course. But I just, I love that. And also it's basically a sign that Christmas is coming, which somewhat selfishly, I can't wait for because of my time off that I take. And something else, every Hanukkah, there's, I only learned about this this year, that there's apparently a menorah parade. Well, apparently, no, there actually is a menorah parade. There are several menorah parades where people decorate their cars. Uh, they put menorahs on their cars and they have little parades every Hanukkah. Every year, somebody from one of those parades goes by, drives down our street with one of those lit menorahs on top of their car. It's like an SUV with loud music blasting out of it. And I just love seeing that. I love it so much. And it was nice to see that this year, especially because, well, the other thing I talked about, the trip to the Our Lady of Guadalupe shrine didn't happen this year because, of course, COVID. So they closed the shrine just to keep everybody safe. So that couldn't happen. But I was glad to see the uh, car from the menorah parade. That's just so cool. I think it's... Uh, from a temple in Skokie, if I'm not mistaken, even though there's a, uh, I think there's a temple just a few blocks away from where I live, but this one that I see is usually from Skokie. But aside from that, we're doing the usual Christmas stuff we usually do. You know, we watch Christmas-type movies, we uh, uh probably going to do some Christmas cookies and stuff, and just enjoy the time off and uh, spending time together. That's that's what we're going to do. Hopefully we'll make some sense out of uh, our apartment, especially the room where I'm recording this now, which really needs to be put in shape. Maybe I'll record some music and hopefully I'll play a lot of video games. But hey, I'm not really here to talk about Christmas. I'm here to do a freaking podcast. So something that I wanted to talk about was, well, 1990 was 30 years ago, 30 years ago. So A lot happened to me in 1990, so I just want to talk about what this schnook's 1990 was all about. At five years of age, I was too young to remember the first decade change I was alive for. Oh, I was aware that it was 1980, but it just didn't register with me that the year change was a multiple of 10. I do remember the change to 1990, though. 15-year-old me was, of course, much more aware of that satisfying decimal feeling of the next 10 happening. 
10 years later, I'd have not only the ending of a decade to look forward to again, but also the ending of a century and a millennium. Remember that when nothing happened? Well, guess why nothing happened? Because hardworking engineers and programmers were making damn well sure that nothing would happen. So thank them for that. (laughs) Even though I'm a software engineer, you don't have to thank me for that. I was not a software engineer at the time, but eh, you're welcome anyway. Anyway, for now, let's not worry about the millennium or the century or even the entire decade. Let's talk about that specific year, 1990. That was a long time ago, but it doesn't feel like it's more than, I don't know, 20 years ago max. Sorry, but in my heart, the 90s were not 30 years ago. I was a sophomore at Joliet Catholic High School, across the street from where I lived. Well, not directly across the street, but across the street and a little ways north. Uh, As people in the Midwest say, kitty corner, even though the correct term is catter corner. My last semester ever, well, really everybody's last semester ever at Catholic High, as we called it, it was about to begin. Joliet Catholic was an all-boys school. The previous year, it was announced that Catholic High would be merging with St. Francis Academy, the all-girls Catholic school across town. The buzz was that SFA, as everybody called it, was having financial problems, and this merger would bail them out. Plus, it meant that we'd have girls in our classes for the first time since 8th grade. We guys, we were looking forward to it. But we quickly realized that it meant that we would have to say goodbye to the small but fortress-like building that we have come to know and love. There was no way that building was big enough to handle the combined student population of both schools, but SFA, their building easily had more than enough room. One of those things that we knew and loved about that old building, though? The victory light. When the old part of the school was built, it had a steeple. It still does have a steeple, really. The uh, building's still standing, and it's in use as a senior home. And um, that steeple was visible for miles away, especially before there was a lot of construction that went up uh, in nearby Shorewood and uh, Plainfield. Well, at the very least... That steeple was in clear view of WJOL, the local radio station, on the other side of the Illinois and Michigan Canal. At some point during the school's history, somebody installed a light inside that steeple. If a major sports team won a game that day, they'd turn on the light as an indication to WJOL that Catholic High won. The victory light became probably the most beloved tradition at Joliet Catholic. It was gonna hurt to not have that anymore. But I argued that because the Carmelites would still own the building, there's no reason the light can't be put to use for the new school's victories. I even circulated a petition to keep that thing going. There were some alums who wanted the victory light to actually be physically removed and brought over to the new school, but for whatever reason, that didn't happen. Either it was too risky, or the old building was declared a historic site or something, I'm not really sure. Uh, Whatever the case, I'm going to opine that uh, I'm glad they did not move it. It really belongs there. It belongs at the old place. I think it was that semester at Catholic High when the infamous ballot went out to students. The vote would determine the new school's colors and the new school's sports nickname. I don't remember what the choices of colors were. It's probably just blue and gold or something. But neither of the choices they gave us were Catholic High's traditional colors of brown and white, reflecting the colors of the Carmelite order in charge of the school. Judging from what the ballot said, the Joliet Catholic Hilltoppers would no longer be the Hilltoppers, but depending on the vote, either the Royals or the Eagles. 
We were stunned. What in the hell does royals have to do with anything? And why eagles? Especially when Holy Family School, whose sports teams were nicknamed the Eagles, were just a few blocks down the street from where our new school would be. Our old colors, gone. Our old nickname, gone. Many of us scribbled out the options on the ballots and wrote in more suitable choices. Some punsters suggested Hill's Angels for the team nickname because of the current Hilltopper's nickname, and Angels because the team nickname at St. Francis was Angels, despite the fact that it was an all-girls school and the only angels mentioned in the Bible were men, but hey, semantics and pedantics, right? From what I heard from one of the student council reps, in the entire student body, there were only four valid ballots returned, so they knew that they had a problem at their hands. And it didn't stop there. There were rumblings about a sit-in. We all planned to meet in the cafeteria at a certain time before school started. I think it was on a Tuesday. And we'd just sit there and not leave. Oh, and uh, wear black armbands, they told us. Well, I didn't know where to get a black armband, so I just took an old dress sock and cut a strip from it and tied it around my arm. When I arrived at the cafeteria, word was going around that the sit-in had been rescheduled for 10 a.m. So, 10 a.m. arrives, and uh, the cafeteria doors were locked. Interestingly, they're never locked until evening. So, somebody obviously blabbed to the dean or the principal or something. So, the crowd headed to the wide hallway that separated the old part of the building from the new part. The crowd sat down and chanted, We are JC! I have to confess, though, I didn't participate. It seems as though I chickened out, but the truth was I didn't really chicken out. It's just that it was pretty damn crowded in that hallway, and I get very claustrophobic. So I just went to French class. Mrs. Golf, our teacher, said that she's technically supposed to dock any students who didn't show up, but in her heart, she knew that she couldn't. She knew that we were doing the right thing. So instead, any students who showed up to class got some extra credit points. Before we started talking about the usual Pierre going to the library, cafe, and university with a loaf of bread, we spent a bit of time talking about our frustrations, just venting about how things were going. I don't believe at this point the new school officially had a new name. For the past year, the administration was deliberating and they were open to suggestions, but they hadn't made any announcement on any possibilities. In the back of my mind, I thought they were just going to kind of combine the two names and come up with Joliet Catholic from one school and then Academy from the other. Very uncreative, I thought, but diplomatic. And it turns out that's exactly what they did. Catholic High and SFA combined to become JCA, Joliet Catholic Academy. Now, I got to tell you about the old place at 31 North Broadway, the old Joliet Catholic High School. As much as I hated being in school, I've always hated being in school, except for the old town school of folk music, of course. But I really loved that old place. There was something cozy, something homey, something comforting about it. I'm sure those who went there years before would disagree, especially if they were recipients of a swift ass-whooping from Brother Shane or any of the other men of cloth back when corporal punishment was still practiced. There was something charming about the building. It was even reported once that uh, close to Christmas, a student just walked into the dean's office and sat down next to the Christmas tree in the office. When he was asked if he needed help, he said, Nah, I just wanted to come in here because it's nice and peaceful. And indeed, it really was. In the new part of the building, there was a small chapel. It was such a beautiful chapel, too, like no other Catholic place of worship I ever saw before or since. Cobblestone floor, pieces of stained glass embedded in the walls, and very intimate. Maybe enough room for 20 people or so. And quite peaceful. 
just a great place to just sit and meditate and forget about the outside world or reading the next act of whatever Shakespeare play you were going over in Mrs. Keating's class. <laughs> yeah, it was a rite of passage at Catholic High that at some point you would have Mrs. Keating as your English teacher. Mrs. Keating, who demanded that you study for her class for at least an hour every night, and who set out to make us all, as she said, gentlemanly scholars. She was a hard-ass, too. A lot of people didn't like her, but I gotta tell you, she was definitely a fixture at Catholic High, and she had a very subtle but sly sense of humor. For what it's worth, I had great respect for her. In fact, I still do. I still do. That semester, though, in English class, my sophomore year, after surviving Mrs. Keating freshman year, I was in Mrs. Terrence's class, and that semester started out with speeches. We were going to learn how to deliver speeches. Our first speech assignment was about our favorite, well, anything, and we had two minutes. Go over by more than a minute and you'd be docked. Brian Bloom's speech was about his favorite place, New York City. And I remember in particular that Brian talked about how the hot dogs in New York had toppings that you wouldn't believe, but Mrs. Terrence said, I would have loved to have heard what those toppings were. Another student in my class talked about his favorite place, which was Catholic High. My speech was about my favorite TV show at the time, The Simpsons, which had only been on the air a short time as a standalone show. I remember at the time that the most recent Bart Simpson chalkboard task was, I will not call my teacher hotcakes. The next speech was the speech to inform or demonstrate. I know I mentioned this in the first appendix episode I did, but my speech was about the rumor that Paul McCartney died in a car accident in 1966. We had five minutes to give our speeches, but I'm pretty sure I went close to ten and got a B for what otherwise would have been an A. Ryan Glazer demonstrated trumpet playing because, well, he was in band. That was when I learned about transposed instruments. In his speech, he said he was playing a scale in C, but I clearly heard it as a B-flat scale, so I asked him about that afterwards. He said, well, it's a B-flat trumpet, meaning that the fingering that would otherwise play a C actually plays a B-flat. Eric Patecki's speech was, um, you ready for this one, folks? Um, his speech was about demonstrating the proper way to clean a rifle, complete with the actual rifle. Now, we all had to get our topics approved ahead of time, by the way, and this was approved. Of course, the dean's office had to inspect the rifle, and uh, he had to prove that he didn't bring any ammo with him, but man, imagine trying that now. Uh, kids, uh, please do not try that now. Steve Kapinas delivered a speech on what it was like to go to a Bulls game at Chicago Stadium, and Matt Green talked about rap music, and he played a little bit of You Can't Touch This, and that was the first time I ever heard MC Hammer. So it was kind of a sign of the times. You know, the Simpsons, MC Hammer, and the Chicago Bulls were actually worth a damn. That was what 1990 was all about, really. Now, the second half of the semester in English, that started with Shakespeare, and I was nervous about that because the previous year, Mrs. Keating had us do Julius Caesar, and that ended up being a massive disaster for me, and I ended up with a D in that class. I just couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand Shakespeare at all. That Elizabethan English just didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't follow a damn thing. My mother had just become good friends with a former Catholic high teacher who happened to be Mrs. Keating's best friend. The late Mrs. McCarthy recommended that I use Cliff's notes to help me. So I took her advice and I used Cliff's notes to help me understand Julius Caesar better. And because of Cliff's notes, I um, failed the Julius Caesar test by one point. There were a bunch of true-false questions on the test, and the rule was, if the answer is false, then not only do you have to mark it false, but you also have to provide the correct information. Well, 
one of the true-false questions was, Augustus Caesar was Julius Caesar's son. Now, I do remember discussing that in class, and I do remember Mrs. Keating specifically addressing that issue for sure. But the thing is, Cliff's notes said that Augustus Caesar was Julius Caesar's adopted son. So I'm thinking, wait a minute, I don't remember if Mrs. Keating said that Augustus was his son. Is this a trick question or something? So I put true. I mean, a son is a son, adopted or natural. But nope, she wouldn't accept that answer. She actually yelled at us in class over this one because so many people got it wrong. She said Augustus was Caesar's grand nephew. Well, Mrs. Keating herself does not like to be contradicted, and no way in hell was I going to contest it and cite Cliff's notes as my source. But sophomore year, studying Shakespeare, the designated play was Othello, or if you want to be that guy, the tragedy of Othello, the Moor of Venice. And I found it frighteningly easy, actually. I was beside myself at how well I understood everything. I wondered if maybe Mrs. Keating's class really did help me understand Shakespeare for the future. But when I was telling this story to my wife, she said, well, no, Julius Caesar is definitely a difficult play to follow. It really was hard. And uh, she should know she's an English major and she taught English for several years. Uh, Oh, well, I, I didn't care. I understood Othello and I ended up with an A in the class. Sophomore year also meant that I had two particularly difficult classes, geometry and chemistry. I am a bit of a math guy, but man, geometry was hard. I understood most of the concepts. I knew the formulas, and I knew the Pythagorean theorem and all that stuff. And Mr. Douglas was a really good teacher. But what I just couldn't get a grip on was geometric proofs. To this day, I cannot understand why on earth of all the math concepts you learn in school, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, square roots, algebra, algebra 2, geometry, trigonometry, pre-calculus, calculus, the one and only thing they need you to write out information proving your answer is geometry. I, I just couldn't figure out how to approach it. Somehow I always ended up with a decent grade in the class. I think usually a B, sometimes a C. Chemistry, on the other hand... That was tough. So many people told me chemistry was going to be difficult. My parents told me that. Other teachers told me that. Other students told me that. And they were not kidding. We had a good teacher. And uh, Mr. Wisbrocker, or Mr. Wiss as we sometimes call him, he was a really nice guy. But the concepts were damn near impossible to comprehend. And uh, Mr. Wiss was actually an example of how religion and science can coexist. On the first day, he told us that he was a very devout Christian, and that he had a saying, Next to God, chemistry is everything. Remember, this is a Catholic school. He's allowed to bring that up. He said that he believed that God is in everything, and is the reason that everything exists and happens. And he also believed that everything exists and happens because of chemistry. On the first day of class, he handed out what he called a chemistry Bible sheet, and he told us we had to memorize it. It was uh, some basic formulas, a few uh, chemical equations, things like that. We had to know what the chemical symbol was for, say, sodium hydroxide. And um, basically, the reason that he called this thing the chemistry Bible sheet was he wanted us to know it as well as we should know the Bible. To make sure that we knew the chemistry Bible sheet inside and out, he gave us all a test on it. 
And the rule was, if you got anything lower than an A on the test, you had to retake the test in Jug or detention. And for him, Jug happened in the morning because he lived in Bourbonnais, 35 miles away, and ergo at the end of the day, he wanted to split as soon as possible because of his commute. But he ran the bookstore, so he had to be there early in the morning, so he figured he could run the bookstore and give us our Jug tests at the same time. And you'd keep retaking it until you got the A. Also, every time you took the chemistry Bible sheet test, it would count. So I knew a lot of kids who memorized the chemistry Bible sheet, but they intentionally got B pluses several times just so they could bank up some good grades in case uh, chemistry really was that hard in the future. And yes, it was. Me, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to get it over and done with. Uh, First time I took it, I got a B plus. So I had to take it one more time. But the second time I took it, I got the A. But my final grade at the end of the second semester, D minus. And if I'm being honest, I'm pretty sure that I got a D minus because Mr. Wiss was too nice a guy to give me an F. Interestingly, my overall GPA that semester was still high enough to put me on the A honor roll, so my parents didn't even give a damn that I nearly failed chemistry. Also, I think Mr. Wiss knew that I tried, and he knew I was a decent kid, too, because I wasn't one of those students who'd interrupt class for something stupid or cheat on a test or in other ways cause him trouble, which is also why I think that I was one of a few students he invited to help him pack up his classroom at the end of the year. After all, the school was closing, and he'd need to move all his stuff across town into a new classroom. The pay would basically be a discount in the school's bookstore. Flashing forward to the end of the school year and the packing of the classroom, I remember I was joined by two or three juniors whom I already knew from Scholastic Bowl, one of whom had a cassette copy of the Beach Boys album Made in USA. Uh, Yes, Made in USA, not Made in the USA. There's no the in that title. And he was obsessed with that tape, and he was playing it all the time. And I was just getting into the Beach Boys at the time, so packing up the chemistry classroom was pretty enjoyable because of that. And uh, I think that might have been the first time I ever heard Heroes and Villains, too. Uh, Anyway, let's save the music gab for another time. I guess I learned something from Mr. Wiss's chemistry class because he told us that it's very important to know that when diluting chemicals, one should never add water to acid or else bad things could happen. You do it the other way around. You add acid to water. Well... While we were packing up the classroom, I saw that Mr. Wiss was pouring acids down the sink and then running water afterwards. I reminded him what he taught us. He said, oh, don't worry. These acids are very low-grade, low-reacting, so adding water to them isn't going to hurt anything. I remember at some point when we were cleaning up that classroom, we noticed a door and we opened it because we thought it was a closet or something. We wanted to make sure everything was caught. So we opened the door and we found an entire classroom that nobody knew about. Well, maybe Mr. West did. I don't know. The desks in it were pretty old, too. They're definitely not from recent years. They probably went back to the 60s or something. So, obviously, this classroom had not been touched. It was just so bizarre. Well, between the time I wrote this script and recorded this, I learned about an alleged ghost (laughs) that would show up to some people. There was a priest, a young priest, only 32 years old, who taught on the third floor, which is where the chemistry classroom was. He went to visit his parents one night um, somewhere near Chicago, and when he was driving back to Joliet, he got killed in a car accident. So part of me wonders if that was his classroom, and because of the alleged hauntings, they just decided to close it permanently. 
So, yeah. <laughs> but regardless, I think it was about a week, maybe two weeks, that we helped Mr. Wisprocker pack up the chemistry classroom, and he gave us all bookstore vouchers that looked like it was basically three eighty five per hour that we worked, which back then was minimum wage. Oh, and uh, speaking of Scholastic Bowl, I know I mentioned being on the team in a previous episode, but just in case you didn't hear that episode or you don't know what Scholastic Bowl is, in a nutshell, it's kind of like Jeopardy, but instead of three players, it's two teams of five players. Well, we went to state that year and came in second, barely losing to the Illinois Math and Science Academy. At least that's what I was told. Uh, I was among the people the team didn't take with them that day. But it wasn't a complete loss. While my friends were almost winning state, I went to the mall and bought Tetris for the Commodore 64 at Babbage's, and I spent a good portion of the day playing Tetris on uh, a black and white TV my grandmother gave me. And I remember the background music of Tetris put me in a huge trance. But that was May of 1990, and um, by the time the month ended, Joliet Catholic High School was history. Max Ziesmer was officially recognized as the last Hilltopper, quite simply because his name in the class of 1990 came last alphabetically, so technically he was the last person to graduate. There was a picture of him in the Joliet Herald News, too, a picture of him holding a bumper sticker that says, oh, actually, you know what? I have that bumper sticker. It says, will the last Hillman to leave make sure the light is on? And it has a crude drawing of the victory light next to it. I gotta admit, though, I was a bit irked that he got that recognition because, well, he was already Mr. Popular as it was. Max was uh, one of the football team captains. He was the student body president. He was homecoming king. And God knows how many other honors were bestowed upon him. But, uh, you know what, though? I have to say, the few dealings I had with him, he was a nice enough guy, so you know what? Good for him. Good on him. But it was sad to say goodbye to 31 North Broadway. There were actually nights that I actually cried myself to sleep over it, knowing that I'd not have the old place anymore, not having the convenience of walking to school, walking back from school in just a matter of minutes, telling people, hey, come over to my house after school, let's shoot some hoops, because we had a hoop in the backyard. So, summer vacation. Well, at some point during summer vacation, my mom told me that she saw a want ad in the paper that the public library was hiring, and I liked going to the library, so she said, yeah, you might want to look into this. Well... <laughs> The way I see it, 30 years later, she was probably trying to tell me, you're not going to spend the summer lying around and listening to the Beatles. So I applied for the job, and I was called in for an interview. My dad actually sat in on the interview just to get an idea for what my work schedule would be in the event that I was hired. I don't remember a heck of a lot about what would be my first ever job interview, other than that one of the questions was, what's one thing you absolutely hate to do and wish you'd never have to do again? And I said, mowing the lawn. <laughs> Little did I know how prophetic that would be, given that from the day I moved out of my parents' house, I'd never live somewhere again where I'd have to mow a lawn. Well, at least as of December 2020. The interviewer handed me a stack of index cards with Dewey Decimal System numbers on them, and I had to put them in order, basically simulating shelving books. I seem to remember they were all in the 373 point something range, and I saw that one had a 393 on it. Ho <laughs> ho, tricky! I felt so smug catching that little detail, and then I proudly handed the sorted cards over to Mary. She went through them, handed them back to me, and said, You might want to triple check. So I flipped through them, and I saw that among those 373 point somethings, there was a 353 point something that I didn't catch. Ooh! I thought for sure I blew the interview because of that, which is why I was stunned when a couple of days later, Mary called to offer me the job. Four bucks an hour. If memory serves me right, I was one of three pages that were hired. 
I was only 15 years old, so I had to get a work permit when school started back up. My first day of work was June 19th. I don't remember when my second day of work was, but I do remember what that second day consisted of. Cleaning books and shelves that were damaged from a fire the previous year. In 1989, shortly after the library closed for the night, a guy named Larry Williams, who I think had some mental issues, threw a Molotov cocktail through a window in the first floor, doing some serious damage to parts of the fiction in juvenile departments. So, those departments were closed and temporarily rehoused a block away in a vacant building formerly occupied by a department store called Klein's. So, yeah, my second day of work involved salvaging a bunch of books that had some residual debris and water from the fire hoses from that strange night. By the way, I remember that the guy's name was Larry Williams because, well, even in 1989, I was so into the Beatles that I knew that Larry Williams was also the name of an R&B singer that they were into and recorded a couple of covers of. Uh, again with the music, though. I spent part of the summer working at the library, and I got to know a lot of the staffers there. I seem to remember that I, I liked pretty much everybody there, and indeed, many of them are still good friends to this day. Now, one of the advantages of being home for the summer was on one of the oldies stations, 103.5 WFYR, which eventually became Rock 103.5, and I don't know what it is now. I don't listen to that frequency. But every weekday at noon... There was Bob's Beatles Brunch. And who was Bob? Well, he was a British guy named Bob Barnes-Watts. Bob Barnes-Watts. Every day at noon, he would play 10 Beatles songs. He'd ask listeners to write in with their 10 favorite Beatles songs. Now, the cool thing about that show was that I don't believe he was playing the CDs. And the reason that I say that is because earlier Beatles stuff that he would play would be in stereo. And the early Beatles were not available in stereo on CD at the time. I think he was playing stuff from the American albums, which were available in stereo. This was before I could afford to buy all the, uh, the albums, so everybody else in Chicago, when they were playing the Beatles, they were playing them off the new CDs, so for the first four albums, I would have to deal with mono, and then stereo for the rest. But what I used to do was, because I couldn't afford to buy all the albums yet... I would record stuff off of Bob's show, off of Breakfast with the Beatles, and any song that they played that I didn't already have, I would record. And I would resequence them later into the actual albums. But one thing that kept eluding me was the stereo version of the song Every Little Thing. So I put together my top 10 favorite Beatles songs, and truth be told, they weren't necessarily my top 10. They were just 10 that I didn't happen to have on tape yet. So I put together my list of 10, sent them into uh, WFYR Bob's Beatles Brunch at uh, Prudential Plaza, downtown Chicago. Well, months went by and I never heard anything. So I put together another list, same strategy, songs that I don't yet have on tape. And I swear a day or two later, he announced my name and he was playing my list. Turns out it was the list I sent in like eight months previously. So I was so freaking excited. I was just screaming when I heard that. Why was I so excited? Because whomever Bob picked would win 10 Beatles albums. I was so freaking excited because I was about to get 10 Beatles albums. They were all on vinyl, which is what I thought would happen. And um, the ones that I got, they sent, I think I got them like a week later. A package arrived for me and it included With the Beatles, which was a British album. And uh, this was back when. 
Apple Records was starting to standardize the catalog and phase out the American albums. And uh, so it was a mono with the Beatles and uh, on a purple capital label, and it sounded like garbage. Uh, there was Beatles 6, which I was excited about because I knew that would have every little thing on it and in stereo. Uh, Rock and Roll Music Volume 1, I believe. Uh, the U.S. version of Rarities. Also, the Red Album, the which is what people call the 1962 to 1966 compilation, two records set. So I really got 11 records for the uh, promise of 10. Uh, I got the uh, current reissue of Abbey Road at the time. Uh, Real Music, which was a compilation of uh, songs that were in Beatles movies. It was a, People tend to trash that compilation, but it was actually pretty good. There was a good selection of songs on it. And um, it had a really cool set of liner notes. And this is something I only learned in recent years. It marked the worldwide debut of the song I Should Have Known Better in Stereo Without the Harmonica Error. Uh, Very common Beatles lore is that the stereo version of I Should Have Known Better, there's a problem with the harmonica. It just drops out for a brief second, but it fixes that on real music. Uh, There was also the 20 Greatest Hits compilation. Uh, Yellow Submarine, and I believe the American version of Revolver. Yeah, yeah, the American version of Revolver. Uh, and the thing about all these albums, they sent me, they all had circles cut out of the corners, uh, basically telling people, yeah, this, these are not to be resold. So that that was really cool. I was so excited about that. And right about that same time, my grandfather, the mad Russian whom I've talked about before, had to be rushed to the hospital and he had a quadruple bypass. Now, my grandparents lived in Delavan, Wisconsin, which is pretty much right over the border of uh, Illinois, and uh, they had to send him to Milwaukee, actually, so we went up to visit him for a couple of days. So that was my first time in Milwaukee. I remember telling my grandfather that I had won 10 Beatles albums, and being the ever-so-delightful person he is, he said, you know, you gotta claim those for taxes, that's income. Yeah, not, oh, really, that's great. That's that's a nice thing to have happen to you. No, it's like, that's yeah, taxable, you know. Yeah, I'm sure the IRS is going to hunt me down for maybe, maybe $150 worth of records. <laughs> oh, crap, there's no statute of limitations on that. I'm dead. Oh, oh well. wonder what the interest would be on 30 years of uh, uh, whatever taxation would be on a $150 prize. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Also that summer... Last week of July, first week of August, I was in Clearwater Beach with my parents for vacation, which was, um, well, you're 15 years old, you're on vacation with your parents, and your mother is extremely overprotective of you, and you really want to just take a walk by yourself in a place you're unfamiliar with, and, uh, well, you can figure out how exciting that vacation was. Well, I did manage to go to a record store, and I found a copy of the Beach Boys' Smiley Smile album on cassette, and I had never seen that album in any stores back home, including the wonderful and sorely missed Crow's Nest. But, uh, you know what, actually, I I already mentioned twice I should hold off talking about music, because this is not the Music for Schnucks segment. (laughs) Uh, Of course, the inevitable had to happen. School starting up again. This time it was a new school. Joliet Catholic Academy. Honestly, I don't really remember much about my first day, except that in the morning, I saw one of the seniors that I knew from Scholastic Bowl and just said hi. And while we were making small talk, I happened to ask him, oh, by the way, do you happen to know where this classroom was? He said, well, why don't you ask her? Uh, That is, the girl he was talking to when we bumped into each other. He said, I think she's pretty familiar with this place. Of course I didn't think of that. That's simply logic. 
What I do remember was overall how that first week went. Part of it doesn't really have anything to do with school, though. One night, my brother went to Alpine Valley in East Troy, just over the border in Wisconsin, and he saw Stevie Ray Vaughan play with Eric Clapton. The next morning, he woke up to the news that Stevie was killed in a helicopter crash right after the show. And just a couple of days later, an F5 tornado hit and caused a pretty massive amount of damage in Plainfield and Crest Hill, and a little bit less damage in Joliet. I remember my brother told us that he heard about it when he was at work at Sharp Electronics in Romeoville, and he heard that an apartment complex in Crest Hill was completely flattened, which kind of put him on edge because he had just moved to an apartment complex in Crest Hill and thought that it was the only apartment complex in Crest Hill, so uh, he thought that he might not have a home to go back to after his workday was over. Well, it turns out that despite what he thought, he did not live in the only apartment complex in Crest Hill. His place was safe. The tornado hit on August 28th. I'd already been home from school, and uh, we had a classic Midwestern severe thunderstorm. My mom was at work, and my dad was home because he had recently lost his job. Things were looking pretty nasty outside, and we heard a tornado siren. So we took the dog and went into the basement with a radio, and came back up when WJOL said it was safe. I don't think there was any damage anywhere near us, which of course I can't say for Plainfield and Crest Hill. And Plainfield High School was totally flattened. It was nature at its cruelest. Homes, cars, lives turned upside down. A force that could turn bricks to dust and refrigerators to scrap metal. Yet leave clothes neatly hanging in their closet, dishes perfectly stacked in an open cupboard. This morning, dogs were walked through the rubble, a final search for victims. A National Guard helicopter made a final sweep across the adjacent cornfield where seven of the dead were found last night. They were sucked up and blown from their homes. But the next day, we learned that 28 people were killed. That's how easy it is to remember that date. On August 28th, 28 people were killed. A month later, another person who was injured in the tornado died from his injuries, which of course brought the total to 29. The next day, I opened the paper and saw that one of the 28 people killed was Ryan Glazer. I, w I was in shock. He had a paper route and he was delivering papers with his little brother. And when things started to look nasty, he told his brother, go ahead and take cover. I'm going to hurry up and finish with the last few papers I have. Well, when all was over, his brother couldn't find him anywhere. I think a husband and wife found Ryan and they rushed him to the ER. From what I understand, a piece of debris, a two by four or something, impaled him and went right through his lung and he died in surgery. I called my friend Andrew, who knew Ryan both from school and from living in Plainfield, and uh, Andrew clearly wasn't in the mood to talk. I remember the next day in school he wouldn't talk to me, but every time he saw me, he flipped me the bird. I also found out that someone else I knew, a sophomore named Tom Aguizio, who was in Scholastic Bowl with me, he died in the tornado too, along with his mom and I think one of his sisters. They lived in that apartment complex in Crest Hill that had been leveled. Tom's family actually moved there from Joliet just so they'd be closer to JCA. I remember once when Tom and I were making small talk the year before, I mentioned my Commodore 64 and how I was an avid reader of Compute's Gazette magazine, which, uh, those of you who aren't Commodore 64 people, that was a magazine specifically made for Commodore 64 and 128 users, and it had a lot of those type-in programs. Tom said, I think I have one of those at home, I'll bring it for you. And sure enough, he did. And I think it was an issue from 1988 or 1989. Actually, probably, probably 87. I don't remember. But it's the one that has the type-in game Crossroads, and it's one of the best games I ever played. I still have that magazine, too. I'm, I'm not going to part with that thing. 
And going to school the next day, I remember at the beginning of the day, Sister Lucille, who was president of Joliet Catholic Academy, she made an announcement on the PA. Tragedy has struck our school. And she made the announcement about Tom and Ryan and what else have you. It was unusual to hear Sister Lou because usually I think the, was it the Dean? Was it, I think it was the Dean, Mr. Gornick. I think he usually made the, the morning announcements. But regardless, uh, those of you who never went to Catholic school, in Catholic school, they love to find reasons to hold a school mass or at the very least a prayer service. I think I mentioned before that Catholic schools are all about prayer services. And uh, from my experience, that even includes colleges. Well, every year, Joliet Catholic would have an opening Mass to kick off the school year. Well, sadly, they had to turn that opening Mass into a memorial service for Tom and Ryan, um, and they rescheduled the official opening Mass for a week or two later. Well, in the meantime, I put two and two together and indeed got a pretty significant four. Joliet Catholic High School was sitting there unused. Plainfield High School had just been flattened by a tornado. It would only make sense to let Plainfield High School use the old Catholic High building until they rebuilt. Physics class with Father Ray was first, so I could bring it up with someone who has a direct connection to what happens with the building. The Carmelite priests and brothers still lived at the priory next door to the old place, by the way. But I said to Father Ray, Hey, since uh, we have a school that's not being used, and Plainfield High School doesn't have a building, how about... And he interrupted me and said, When you get home, make sure you read the paper. Indeed, I wasn't the only one to think of this. A deal had already been made. Plainfield High did indeed move to 31 North Broadway, and they put a couple of modular classrooms in the parking lot to handle the overflow. I don't remember how long Plainfield stayed, but they were definitely still there when I started college. The ironic thing, at least in an Alanis Morissette kind of way, is that Ryan Glazer didn't stay at Joliet Catholic after the merger. He transferred to Plainfield High School. If he hadn't been killed in the tornado... He would have been the only class of 1992 student who would have gone to school at 31 North Broadway for all four years of high school. Sometime later in the semester, we heard Sister Lucille's voice in the morning announcements, again starting by saying, Tragedy has once again struck our school. The previous day, four kids carpooling home from school got in a really bad car wreck. Two of them got out with a few bumps and maybe a stitch or two, and they were in school the next day, but the other two didn't come out so well. Ryan Connolly was in a coma, and so was Candy Anderson, who, from what we heard through the grapevine, had a 6% chance of surviving. I remember Mrs. Nolan, our religion teacher, had a hard time dealing with the news, but she was a trooper, though. She was just in shock, I think. She would interrupt herself while lecturing, and she'd just stand there for a second or two and just say... Wow, I just can't believe this. Well, Ryan came out of the coma after a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to step out of 1990 for just a moment and flash forward to 1991, the third semester. I unexpectedly saw Ryan at school. He had recovered enough to come back. So I went up to him. Dude, so good to see you. How are you feeling? He said, um, fine, but who are you? <laughs> I guess I couldn't blame him. Uh, he was in several of my classes, but man, you're bound to have amnesia after that kind of a car wreck. But back to 1990, eventually we did hear that Candy was starting to get a little better. She came out of the coma, and indeed she miraculously pulled through. She was back in school the next school year. And by the way, we pretty much concluded that if we heard Sister Lou's voice in the PA, it was bad news. Indeed, when the Persian Gulf War started in 1991, 
The first voice we heard that morning on the PA belonged to Sister Lucille, who told us, Crisis has struck our nation. Later on, I think a freshman's father died after an illness, so Sister Lou had to inform us, Tragedy has once again struck our school. But anyway, again, back to 1990. When we did have our actual opening mass, it was the first time in my life I played a guitar in front of people, definitely the first time outside of my home at least. I had joined the Liturgy Committee music group, and uh, that was when many of my classmates learned I could play guitar, actually. Sister Peggy was in charge of the group, and she was awesome. She was a wonderful person. She probably still is, actually. And she was one of the very few staffers from the old St. Francis Academy who treated us like adults. Our practices were in the mornings once or twice a week. I remember my friends Amy, oh god, I had the hots for her big time, and uh, Bridget, uh, the latter of whom I have mentioned on this podcast before, they would always call it Holy Jam. But Sister Peggy introduced me to this little device called a capo right in the middle of the opening mass. Before we started one of the songs, she said, we're going to capo two on this one. And I said, huh? And she strapped this little thing around uh, the fretboard, and I had no idea what to do about it. Now, I have explained capos before, I think, in this podcast, but uh, just in case I didn't, and for those of you who don't know what a capo is, it's a device that goes on the fretboard of a guitar if you want to transpose to a higher key, so you don't have to recalculate all the chords and readjust your fingering. The capo basically becomes a new, imaginary top of the fretboard. For example, if you put a capo above the second fret, and you put your fingers in the position to form a D chord, When you play, it actually comes out as an E chord. Now, this confused the heck out of me on that day. I'd never used one of these before, and I didn't know what it was doing. And thanks to my perfect pitch, it was so strange to play a D, but hear an E come out. And I wasn't sure if I was supposed to play a D because it was written on the page, or play an E because it's supposed to come out. I was so freaking confused, so I just sat out for the rest of that song. And then it occurred to me. I never could figure out how to play Norwegian Wood. It's in the key of E, but how do you play that riff when you play it? And then it occurred to me, you're supposed to put a capo on the second fret and play a D instead of an E. But anyway, um, I talked about Rubber Soul in the previous episode, so let's go back to 1990. Now, what about Homecoming that year? Well, all I can say is that I went, but uh, I knew at the time that the only real reason I was going was that so my date would have an excuse to get through the door and hang out with her best friend whose date was my friend Andrew. So, double date, nothing really worth remembering. I mean, Karen was nice and everything. She was was friendly, and uh, uh, we we remained friends, but um, it's that we we both knew that it was just a one-time thing, and hey, I was pretty cool with it. It was the second and last homecoming dance I attended. Now, back at the old place, Catholic High, 31 North Broadway, I didn't attend many football games. In fact, I went to one football game my entire freshman and sophomore years combined, and that was at Addison Trail on their turf. Naturally, the Hilltoppers won. I mean, we were known to not lose. I remember there was a sign at Addison Trail's football field, and it said, Go AT, and it looked like it said, GOAT. Now, this was in 1988, so this was long before that acronym, GOAT, meant greatest of all time. So, of course, we all got a good laugh out of it. But in 1990, for whatever reason, I made it a point to go and support the team. In fact, it got to be habit. And my dad got into the habit, too. He and I actually traveled to the away games as well. And there were new football uniforms. It used to be that the sports uniforms were brown with white trim, and in the case of the football uniforms, white stripes on the sleeves. But now, 
The football jerseys were brown with white numbers, and instead of white stripes on the sleeves, the stripes were pale blue to include St. Francis Academy's old color. That brown and blue combination just didn't work. It looked awful, and we felt that it was violating our traditional brown and white colors. Now, yeah, we understand including St. Francis Academy traditions, but the thing is, the girls didn't play football, at least back then. So, why couldn't we keep our colors as is? Well, some players actually rolled up their sleeves and uh, tied them in place with shoelaces to hide the blue stripes and also kind of in protest. At the first JCA game, Father Bill, who I think was the athletic director or assistant athletic director or something, he attempted to lead the crowd in a sing-along of the new school song. Well, the crowd's booing drowned out the school song and it was never heard again. We won that first game, though, and the second, and the third, and, well, so on and so on. And suddenly, the Hilltoppers were in the playoffs. I still remember the one day when there was a home game against the Redskins at Morris High School, although most people in the crowd were calling them some other word with skins in it. Uh, I don't want to have the little E pop up in iTunes, so I'm not going to say what that is. But uh, they bust us to the game after school. For some reason, Morris was always a feared opponent, but I guess it was because they're probably one of the only Joliet Catholic opponents ever to get a double-digit score against us. But the truth is, we had no problem playing them. It was an easy game. But after that game, I heard one of my classmates say, My God, we're going to state. Yeah, that fact somehow slipped my mind. I think the last time the Hilltoppers went to state was 1986 or 1987. I don't remember whether it was the Friday or Saturday of Thanksgiving weekend. I think it was Saturday. But my dad and I made the trip down to Illinois State University in Bloomington to catch the Class 4A state championship. Joliet Catholic versus Geneseo. The latter wearing uniforms that the Green Bay Packers could have sued over. It was a pretty intense game. Constant back and forth across the field in both directions. Such a tight game. Double overtime. Well... I don't remember if there were any particularly brilliant plays, but somehow we pulled it off. State champs. Even kids in the crowd wearing Providence jackets were cheering for us. Man, if you went to Providence, you didn't dare say anything less than derogatory about Joliet Catholic, and vice versa. But that night, all bets were off. If I remember correctly, the score was 21-20. JCA's first season, 100% undefeated 14 and 0 oh and the running back was mike allstott he was a junior 13 years later he would score the first touchdown in super bowl 37 for the tampa bay buccaneers on the way home my dad pulled over to fill up the tank and i channel surfed the radio and i found a really amazing blues tune i remember thinking how amazing it felt to hear this awesome blues combined with the euphoria of a state championship and thinking of how this same song would have just added to my misery if the Hilltoppers had lost the game. The next Monday in school, Father Ray asked me if I saw the victory light. He said they turned it on. Eh, nice try, Father, but no, it definitely was not on that night. But man, it was quite a night watching the Hilltoppers deliver a state title to JCA in its first school year. Certainly a wonderful contrast to how the year started out, so... I'd like to end this part of my 1990 discussion on this happy note. Now, I know most of my story was really about high school, but hey, I was 15, 16 years old, so most of my 1990 was high school. 
I got to tell you, my JCHS friends and I were not really thrilled about how that merge turned out because we felt that we were being treated like children, where at the old place, we were treated like adults. Now, I was talking to my friend Bridget about that a couple of years ago, and she didn't agree with me, but then again, she might have just been used to being treated that way by the nuns over there. I, I don't know. And I got to say, like, it wasn't all bad because, well, the people that I met at JCA, a couple that I mentioned and some that I didn't mention by name, have become among my favorite people in the face of the earth, and I love them to death. So there was that. But now I got to talk about something very important that happened to me in 1990, and this is specifically about Christmas Eve. Now, usually when I record autobiography of a schnook, I go by some kind of a script. Sometimes it's typed out word for word. Sometimes it's just bullet points. But right now I'm going completely scriptless because I probably have retold this story personally to other friends many, many times. And it's still, uh, I, I don't need to read off of something for this. But Christmas Eve 1990, I don't remember the exact events from start to finish. I'm going to go by essentially what my family would do every year on Christmas Eve. Uh, I don't remember what would have happened during the day. It was pretty random, I guess. But usually we would go to mass early on Christmas Eve, like 4.30, 5 o'clock, whenever the uh, first Christmas vigil was scheduled for dinner. When we lived in Joliet, we would go to a place called Al's Steakhouse, which was considered the fancy place in town. And man, having lived in Chicago for 14 years, oh man, Al's Steakhouse is not fancy. Uh, uh, a bit about Al's. Uh, it's been around forever. I think the Lions Club meets there. But uh, you walk in, it's like a time capsule to probably 1972. And in fact, I'd wager that a lot of the food is also from that era. But that's where you would go for your formal outings. You'd go to Al's Steakhouse. You want to wear more than jeans and a t-shirt to this place. But hey, it's what everybody did. Oh, and uh, just to give you another idea of how the food is there. Uh, I oh, When I was there on my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, uh, they renewed their vows during 5 o'clock mass. And then we went over to Al's Steakhouse. This was uh, 2013. I hadn't been there in a while. But we'd go over there for dinner. I ordered shrimp scampi, and I asked if they had Guinness on tap, because I love me some Guinness. And for formal occasions like that, yeah, I'm going to have a pint of Guinness. And the waitress said, oh, we don't have anything on tap, hon. Oh, interesting. And uh, the shrimp scampi was pretty dry and didn't have a lot of flavor. It was obviously frozen and reheated, probably in a microwave. It's like, oh, brother, seriously? And they don't even have ranch dressing. No, their salad dressing is that red Catalina stuff. Anyway, I'm not going to go on to that. Let's talk about Christmas Eve. But we'd usually have Christmas Eve dinner at Al's Steakhouse. And my parents were friendly with the hostess, so uh, they were usually able to finagle us a, a nice table under their Christmas tree, uh, which we, that was a pretty cool setting, I have to admit. Then after that, we'd go home and... Uh, I would change into sweatpants and something really super comfortable, and we'd exchange presents. Now, before I go any further, let me tell you what was going on in my mind during 1990. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it in this podcast in previous episodes, but I had been yearning for a CD player. My parents, however, they weren't too keen on the idea. 
I mean, yeah, in June, I got the job at the public library, but of course, I was 15 years old and I turned 16 in October. I didn't have a driver's license, so I couldn't borrow a car and go out and just buy one myself. And uh, yeah, and um, my parents never let me borrow the car even when I did have a driver's license. But that story is for another day. My dad looked at the economics out of it. He saw that, well, tapes cost seven, eight bucks, CDs at Crow's Nest, and I'm crossing myself here because I miss Crow's Nest so much. CDs at Crow's Nest were $13.98. And there were a lot more if you went to, say, Musicland, which was the Sam Goody-owned store at the two malls in Joliet. And my dad said, you go broke buying music. But of course, there was something about CDs. You know, first of all, tapes break. Yeah, you could repair them, but they're not always going to be 100% perfect when you repair them. They wear out. Records wear out. CDs, they don't wear out. If you take good care of them, they will last. The worst that'll happen is they get scratched up by poor handling. But they never degrade in sound quality. The player just shines a laser beam on the playing surface and just reads a series of zeros and ones and converts them to sound. So there's no sound quality loss ever. Plus, I was really getting into the Beach Boys at the time. Now, I'm pretty sure I mentioned before what was going on with the Beach Boys in terms of products you could buy. I was relying on records and tapes courtesy of the public library. Some of the records were vintage. Most of the tapes were not. For a long time, the Beach Boys albums were only available in these so-called budget reissues, and many of the albums in these budget reissues were missing songs off of them. So you weren't getting complete albums, and with the tapes at least, because I wasn't really buying records that much because I didn't have a decent turntable, the tapes, all you got was just the tape, the front cover, and the track listing. You didn't get any liner notes or anything. And that was that. And of course, with missing songs on a lot of the tapes, I did buy some of the tapes, but I only bought the ones that weren't missing songs, like the uh, Live in London album. I believe that didn't have any missing songs. In fact, that might have been the only one I actually bought. Everything else I just borrowed from the library and recorded. But one day when I was at one of the record stores in the mall, I just took a gander at the CDs and I saw that there were Beach Boys albums on CD. And not only were there Beach Boys albums on CD, but there were two albums on the CDs, and they were fully intact. The tracks that were missing in the 80s were now back in their rightful places. And there were bonus tracks. There were unreleased songs. There were weird alternate mixes and things that you just couldn't get anywhere else but those CDs. As extensive liner notes and then i redid the math you get the beach boys albums on tape 6.99 7.99 and you're missing songs and you don't get liner notes and it's only one album per tape now if you were to buy two of those that's 6.99 times two that gives you uh, the 13.98 price that crow's nest charged for cd 7.99 times two that's more but with the cds you get a product that doesn't degrade in sound quality. You get two albums worth of material, you get bonus tracks, you get extensive liner notes, courtesy of David Leaf. Man, don't tell me about economics, Dad. This is more economical. And so many of my other favorite artists were just putting out songs and CDs. And of course, bonus tracks were the norm. 
you pretty much expected bonus tracks and hidden tracks such as the one on Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever album. Hello CD listeners. We've come to the point in this album where those listening on cassette or records will have to stand up or sit down and turn over the record or tape. In fairness to those listeners, we'll now take a few seconds before we begin side two. But many times I pled my case as to why I needed a CD player, and every time I was shot down. Oh, But let's go back to Christmas Eve 1990. Exchanging presents under the tree. Yep. There was a box with my name on it, and I opened it up, and praise the Lord Almighty, it was a CD player from Sharp Electronics. And I'm sure my brother might have had some uh, uh, inspiration there, given that he worked at Sharp Electronics at the time, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, actually. And inside the box were three CDs. Well, four, actually, because I'll get to that in a second. But three CDs that I'm pretty sure my brother picked up at Crow's Nest or something. There was the Beatles' White Album, which was a two-CD set. Um, Obsessive Beatles fans listening to this are probably wondering, was it the one in which the word disc was misspelled as D-I-C-S? No, it was not that pressing, unfortunately. There was Paul McCartney's Tripping the Live Fantastic Highlights, which was just a handful of selections from the Tripping the Live Fantastic album that covered uh, Paul McCartney's most recent tour. And uh, it was not the version that had one song that you couldn't get on anything else. This was just basically Paul doing a bunch of Beatles songs and a couple of songs from Flowers in the Dirt, which actually was pretty cool because I didn't have a copy of Flowers in the Dirt. The third CD that was in there, Pet Sounds, which I was thrilled to see. And I'll tell you why. As I was learning about the Beach Boys, something that kept hitting me in the head over and over and over was... There's this brilliant masterpiece that the Beach Boys did called Pet Sounds. It was Brian Wilson's Crown Jewel from 1966. It was the album to end all albums. I think it was 1989, possibly 1990, shortly when I started working at the public library, when I checked the library for Pet Sounds. Our our library did not have it, but I think the Crest Hill Public Library did. So I submitted an interlibrary loan request for it, and a couple of weeks later it came in. It was something that I never knew existed. It was actually a two-record set. One record was an album called Carl and the Passions So Tough, which I learned was the Beach Boys' current new album in 1972. I also learned at that time that the album came packaged with Pet Sounds as a bonus. That was my introduction to Pet Sounds, so I took it home, and it was a summer day, the sun was shining brightly, and uh, I went home, cleaned up my room, and while I was cleaning my room, I put Pet Sounds on the circa 1979 stereo set that I inherited from my brother. It was one of those JCPenney jobs that has a built-in 8-track recorder, AM-FM radio, and a turntable. So, I played Pet Sounds on that turntable. And except for the three hits that came from that album, Wouldn't It Be Nice, God Only Knows, Sloop John B., I just kind of scratched my head and I was like, what is this? It sounded very murky. It had no dynamics to it. And if you're like me, murky sound kind of makes music sound boring. I didn't understand what people were getting at. All I could think was, this is what people are going crazy for? This is the Beach Boys' Sgt. Peppers? I don't get it. What's the big deal? I just couldn't understand it. Sound quality was terrible. It was terrible. 
sure, some of it had to do with the turntable itself, because it wasn't a great turntable. And uh, actually, the stylus might have been worn down. I don't know if it had ever been changed in 10 years. But still, it just sounded awful. So it kind of discouraged me, and I brought the record back to the library. But I didn't think I was done with it yet. I kept thinking to myself, there's got to be something I'm missing. So many people raving about pet sounds, and I'm not liking it. What's wrong with me? I liked everything else the Beach Boys did that I heard. Why not this? So just in the back of my mind, over the following months, I kept thinking, I got to give it another chance. But maybe it's just it was a bad record that I was playing. Maybe it's the playback equipment. But I got to give it another chance sometime. And over the following months, I kept hearing about this brilliant masterpiece called Pet Sounds, which is why I was really happy to see Pet Sounds among the CDs that came in that wrapped package under the tree, because now I had a chance to give it another try. And the thing is, I was really yearning for it. I was yearning for that chance. I knew as long as I had to deal with a subpar turntable, I wasn't going to have a really good chance to enjoy it off of vinyl. And I couldn't find it on tape anywhere, and I didn't want to just buy a copy on tape if I felt that I could just get the CD someday. Well, there was the CD. Now, Pet Sounds was unusual in that it was not paired off with another album for the CD reissue. It was just Pet Sounds by itself with a few bonus tracks. But it still had the extensive liner notes by David Leaf, who was one of Brian Wilson's best friends at the time. And they still hook up every now and then and do stuff together. But man, I was so excited to have a CD player and some starter CDs to go with it. Seriously, I was so freaking excited to have a CD player. So as soon as we were done exchanging presents and everybody was getting ready to go to bed, I brought that sucker over to my, well, mediocre sound design stereo system that I had recently acquired and hooked it up. And I really wanted to listen to Pet Sounds and just take the opportunity to give it that second chance that I wanted to give it. Since everybody was in bed, even though we lived in a pretty big house, uh, my parents' bedroom was downstairs and it was 19 steps below, I didn't want to take a chance that I would wake anybody up, so I just plugged in the headphones, turned out the lights, and there was nothing but the glow of the LEDs from the sound design and the orange backlit LCD screen of the Sharp CD player. And I popped pet sounds in and just lied down in bed and just let it take me away. Let's see where I'm going to go. Of course, it kicks off with Wouldn't It Be Nice. I was expecting that. It's the big hit. Anybody who's ever turned on an oldie station has heard Wouldn't It Be Nice. And then next was You Still Believe in Me. And I was captivated by the harmonies. Wow. Brian Wilson was 23 years old when he did this, and he was able to put these kinds of harmonies together? Are you freaking kidding me? The next song, That's Not Me. This is when I was really starting to feel something, big time. I once had a dream, so I packed up and split for the city. I soon found out that my lonely life wasn't so pretty. I began to think that Brian Wilson was addressing me personally. And with every continual song after that, I really started feeling it. Something was starting to enter my mind, my soul. Early on in the listening, and I remember I wasn't terribly familiar with the album because I only gave it that one chance before, but early on in the listening, what really sticks out for me 
is Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder, which is a very, very mellow, quiet, relaxing tune. And it was putting me to sleep almost. And then next, all of a sudden... Here comes I'm Waiting for the Day with its pounding drum intro. Tell you what, folks, that woke me the hell up right then and there. But still, listening to the lyrics that were speaking to me, and then the harmonies that were just grabbing me, from that all the way to the end, to the heartbreaking, brilliant, beautiful closing of Caroline No, with the sound of a train going by, and Brian Wilson's Beagle and Weimaraner, Banana and Louie, respectively, barking seemingly at that train. All I could think was, oh my god, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. I got it. I finally got it. Then I heard Brian Wilson's voice count something in. One, two, three, four. And then just sing something really high. Oh, this is a bonus track. Unreleased backgrounds. And we get another snatch of harmonies on that too. Oh, wow. Again, the dude was only 23 years old. Hmm, I'm 16 now. I got seven years to do this. Next was Hang On To Your Ego, which was an early version of I Know There's An Answer, which is on side two of Pet Sounds if you're listening on an analog product. Now again, because this is only the really the first time I was truly becoming acquainted with the music, I couldn't tell the difference, and I thought there was maybe a, uh, an error on the CD putting the same track twice, but no, that's not what it was. And finally, the CD closing out with an instrumental track that sat unreleased for 25 years, Trombone Dixie. And then the word end appeared on the CD player. And I just sat there stunned. I couldn't believe it. I finally got it. It all made sense to me. Here I am, 16 years old, going through your typical teenage angst. And I'm listening to a 23-year-old guy who's rich, who's famous. And when he writes songs for his band, he can't write a non-hit if it meant saving his own life. He was happily married to a loving wife. He had a successful career. He had the admiration of his peers and of his fans. He had everything he could possibly want. But from start to finish on Pet Sounds, there was a huge message of insecurity. This guy who was on top of the world still had problems. He had the same problems that everybody dealt with. He understood me. He knew what I was going through. He knew what my friends were going through. It was all about me. He made pet sounds for me, eight years before I was even born. And just the song titles, you have I'm Waiting for the Day, there's that yearning, you still believe in me, there's that implication that, wow, I'm really a screw-up, but you're still there, I still have you. The all-time classic God Only Knows, just the lyrics on that, I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. Very tender lyrics there, but then the second verse, If you should ever leave me, oh man, there's that insecurity coming in again. I know there's an answer, just that title itself implies that 
You're out there searching for something. You're searching. You're on a hunt for this big answer, the ultimate answer, maybe. This is before Douglas Adams wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide, by the way. I just wasn't made for these times. Ugh. In the previous episode, I talked about the thesis statement of Abbey Road. Well, if there is a thesis statement for the Pet Sounds album, then I just wasn't made for these times is that thesis statement. Even the instrumental, Let's Go Away For A While, just the title of that indicates that you want to escape, you want to get away from something. Maybe just a vacation, I don't... Even Sloop John B, for God's sakes, that's a traditional folk song. Sloop John B has themes of, oh man, get me out of this place, I want to go home. The whole album is just, really, just one big 13-track teen angst collection. Now, of course, I can't really give all the credit to Brian Wilson about the teenage angst lyrics, because he didn't write the lyrics in the album. In fact, Brian Wilson seldom writes his own lyrics. He usually has a collaborator. With the Beach Boys, it was usually fellow Beach Boy Mike Love. For a lot of the car songs, he had Roger Christian, who was a DJ, I think, at KRLA. Was it KRLA? No, it wasn't KRLA. It was, uh, oh, KFWB, I think. But anyway, Roger Christian wrote some lyrics with him. Uh, a guy named Gary Usher wrote lyrics with Brian, too. But for Pet Sounds, he had an advertising writer named Tony Asher write most of the lyrics with him. Uh, Mike Love did a little bit of writing on Pet Sounds, and uh, I know there's an answer. The lyrics were rewritten by uh, the road manager, Terry Sachin. But Tony Asher was the main lyricist for Pet Sounds. The way that Brian handles things is he will tell his collaborator, okay, here's what I want this song to say. Uh, I want it to say this, I want it to say that, and I need you to put together some lyrics that express these feelings. So, Tony Asher, if you're out there, thank you for helping Brian. And of course, Mike and Terry, of course. Well, Terry is no longer with us, rest in peace. In fact, his uh, resting place is about um, you know, four or five miles away from where I live. And if you ever need to know why, Brian Wilson typically does not write his own lyrics. Um, here are a couple of samples of uh, Brian Wilson's own lyrics, and you'll kind of understand why he really needs a collaborator. A little bit of laughing and a kissing and a hugging Okay, mind you, a couple of those clips were from a really bad time in Brian's life when he wasn't in the best shape, let's say, mentally. And I'm sure many fans listening to this will kind of understand what I'm saying there. But hey, you get the point. So what was different about this time, Christmas Eve 1990, in which I actually got it? I heard it. I heard everything. I understood why Pet Sounds was all the rage among musicologists, Beach Boys fans, music fans in general. What was so different about that from the time I listened to it when I was cleaning my bedroom? Well, of course, the playback medium had to do with it, I'm sure, because instead of playing a 1972 pressing of a record on a 1979 turntable, I'm listening to a compact disc that doesn't have the scratches and the pops that you get with a record. So definitely the playback medium helped. But I think the real factor in why I got pet sounds this time around, well, I'm going to let the actual composer and producer, Brian Wilson himself, 
explain in his own words, circa 1997. When you listen to pet sounds, use earphones in the dark, and you can hear everything. Jesus Christ, the bastard was right. Now, for dramatic purposes, I would love to end this segment on that phrase, the bastard was right. But there's kind of an epilogue to this. Well, I don't know if you call it an epilogue, but 700 miles and change east of me, there was somebody else who was experiencing the exact same thing, listening to pet sounds in the dark with headphones from a CD and getting it for the first time. Seven years and three months later, we met. 18 months after that, we were married. Many times over the course of this podcast, I've said that the Beatles are my favorite. Let's just keep it at that. However, Pet Sounds, though, you cannot beat Pet Sounds. It is my all-time favorite album, and it was ever since Christmas Eve 1990. There are some favorite questions I just can't answer. My favorite TV show, I don't really have one. My favorite Beatles song, oh my god, you gotta be kidding. There's no way I could come up with a single one. Favorite food? I don't know, there are a lot that I really, really love. But favorite album? Definitely Pet Sounds, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, for God's sakes, it literally changed my life. And by the way, the samples that you heard from the Pet Sounds album come from the CD that I got Christmas Eve 1990. Still plays back without a problem. In fact, Lisa and I listen to it every Christmas Eve just to relive that night. And speaking of um, samples from Pet Sounds, uh, sounds and music that I use in this episode, and all episodes really, are the property of their respective copyright holders, and I intend no infringement whatsoever. I use those sounds for review and demonstration purposes. And uh, yeah, I guess I should say the rest of my ending spiel here. Uh, as always, I thank my lovely wife, Lisa, for her support putting up with me doing a podcast all the time and doing several podcasts sometimes at once and offering her input as well and many many times and of course i thank her for choosing to listen to pet sounds on christmas eve 1990 little did she know her future husband was doing the exact same thing at that same moment very likely and by the way reviews help so please go to itunes slash apple podcasts and review autobiography of a schnook hopefully it's a five star but if it's not then hey put as many stars as you feel it deserves and any podcast supplier you use that offers reviews please leave a review spread the word about this podcast i would love to get some more listeners who want to just hear some random guy talk about himself you can reach out to me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. That is my email address. And schnookpodcast is my handle on both Twitter and Instagram. And there's also a autobiography of a schnook Facebook page. So this will be the final episode of autobiography of a schnook for the year 2020. Um, I may, I, I, I'm not promising this, but I may skip January. I don't know yet. I don't know. I just might decide to take a little bit of a break. And by the way, I'm not the only schnook in the world. How many of us out there are schnooks and have a story to tell? If you have a story you'd like to tell, hey, let me know. Hit me up. I'll, I'd love to have you on the podcast just to get your story out there. But hey, whether I talk to you again in January or later, just think about how the good goes around. And please keep it going around by being safe. Party safely out there, ringing in the new year, celebrating the holidays, and be well. All the best, my friends. 